Alum Stephen G. Fullwood, contributor to The American Age. And in this week's notes, we consider something I've long wondered about concerning the ubiquity of social media and fame. Chris Hayes, host of All In with Chris Hayes on MSNBC, recently published an article for The New Yorker entitled, On the Internet, We're Always Famous. What happens when the experience of celebrity becomes universal? In the piece, Hayes considers the potential effects of what it means to be internet famous, or at least known in a way previously inconceivable and inaccessible before the digital age. In addition to living in a time when large amounts of information are widely available to many people, primarily through computer technology, anonymity, as we once knew it, could very well be a thing of the past. What does it mean, for example, to post on social media and people you do not know read and or comment on your post? What are the psychological effects of desires for likes? What Hayes also proposes is simultaneously being star and fan, a remarkable yet precarious place when considering today's political, social, and economic context. Consider the accessibility of fame, living in the age of misinformation, the gig economy, influencer culture, and fame, which is both easier to get and lose without ever being on traditional media. Hayes acutely observes, quote, I've come to believe that in the internet age, the psychologically destabling experience of fame is coming for everyone. Everyone is losing their minds online because of the combination of mass fame and mass surveillance increasingly channels our most basic impulses towards loving and being loved, caring for and being cared about, getting the people we know to laugh at our jokes, into the project of impressing strangers, a project that cannot by definition sate our desires but feels close enough to real human connection, but that we cannot but pursue it in ever more compulsive ways. We all weigh in on Hayes' article, Travis, Seth, and yours truly, and as usual, thank you for listening to The American Age. Good afternoon, good morning, or good evening, uh, and welcome to my note for this week. I really appreciated uh, Stephen's suggestion of the Hayes article in uh, the New Yorker. So, you know, it's 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 a welcome opportunity to think through some things that you know I haven't thought about in a in a long time. Uh, you know, Hayes. Uh, kind of couches it in terms of, you know, the us being sort of a simultaneously being a star and a fan, um, which I appreciate and is, is a useful way, I think, to think about our relationship to social media. But of course, the the dialectic of of this relationship, you know, uh ruler and subject, master and slave, uh lover and beloved, uh, is a very old one in uh, not just uh, Western philosophy, but quote unquote Eastern philosophy as well. Um, you know, kind of represented in the in, traditionally in the sort of yin yang school. Um, uh, Zhao Yun, uh, one of the you know one of the early philosophers of like the fourth century or something like that, and you know, kind of the naturalist school. Um, thought a lot about, you know, this sort of dual nature of all of the things that we do. Uh, and it's a, it's a pretty useful, you know, rubric, I think, to think with and, and sort of think through, you know, one of the, not, not to quibble, uh, you know, off the bat or, or whatnot, but, you know, one of the things that I think is often a pitfall, and this is my own, you know, just kind of my own point of view 
when it comes to things like this, which is that we are often inclined uh, to think about our time as unique or special or particularly perilous or uh, particularly promising, just depending on what our outlook is. Um, and so I often will pick at these uh, these sort of takes, these uh, these sort of analyses of the present moment. And I it is my reflex to want to say, well, but how is this really new? Is this something that is, you know, really been with us for a very long time, you know, at least since we started having kind of cultured elites that are producing symbolic culture, meaning, you know, like, kind of what does it mean to be a Jew? What does it mean to be a Christian? What does it mean to be an American? What does it mean to be a Russian? These very large imagined communities of people that we will never know, like even going back to the Greeks, what does it mean to be a Greek? Well, you know, the people that we thought of as Greeks, you know, they didn't all know one another. These were still much larger communities than could have been uh, knowable to any one person, you know, in a kinship sort of way. And so one of the things that ancient peoples were super preoccupied with, and particularly uh, ancient peoples that participated in elite culture, was their status in history vis-a-vis how will they be remembered after they are gone. So they didn't just think about themselves in relation to their current subjects. They thought about themselves in relation to all of the kings and queens and emperors and empresses and priests and poets that would come after them and those that came before them. And so even though it's not exactly the same thing as social media and a like popping up and a mention and you know retweets and all this kind of stuff, the idea that human beings have not been fully enmeshed in a symbolic space with strangers whose opinions are entirely imagined but yet matter a great deal to them has been going on for a very, very, very long time. And you can see this, you know, going back to like the Stoics and, you know, think of someone like Marcus Aurelius, the the, the Roman emperor, who had a lot to say about fame. So I'll pull just one brief quotation from him. People who are excited by posthumous fame forget that the people who remember them will soon die too and those after them in turn, until their memory, passed from one to another like a candle flame, gutters and goes out. You know, it's a memento mori, meaning it's a remembrance of one's death. I mean, this was a famous thing that conquering generals would have someone that would would stand beside them, like beating the palms, you know, talking about the vanity of human accomplishments to remind people of their of their status and time. And so chasing fame of strangers, of people who ostensibly exist, but there is no real mechanism for us to know them is not in fact new. Now, social media quantifies this in a in a new way and as in quantifies as in counts, it gives us ability to count these things in a way, but I'm not entirely convinced that that quantification is all that different from the imagined import of of history, you know, think about like, you know, how Napoleon sort of wanted to stand athwart history and and thought of his place in relation to the kings of Egypt and um and whatnot. So I, I 
that's one thing that I, I, I have always want to try and remind us and I try to remind myself of, and, you know, I, I bring it up in the podcast all the time. You know, you think about, you know, like think of crossing Brooklyn Ferry, Walt Whitman's, you know, very famous poem, you know, crowds of men and women attired in the usual costumes. How curious you are to me on the ferry boats, the hundreds and hundreds that cross returning home are more curious to me than you suppose and you that shall cross from shore to shore years hence are more to me and more in my meditations than you might suppose now crossing brooklyn ferry is probably on the you know is really on the upside of of this phenomena of thinking about our place you know this kind of this great democratized version of our place in history which is you know i would say if not uniquely american certainly quintessentially american um, and so, you know, I, I think that's a, an important thing to keep in mind in relation to Hayes, but only as so far as it reminds us of another thing that Hayes brought up, which again, I appreciate was, uh, you know, mentioning Alexandra Kojeva, who was the, uh, the, you know, famously, uh, as he mentions, you know, taught Sartre and all the rest and, uh, and many of the continental philosophers in the, the early to mid 20th century. And his uh, um, introduction on phenomenology is, you know, a a well-read and regarded uh, book even today, you know, many, many years later. And the dynamic that he explores of the master and slave, I think, really captures some of the most troubling aspects of our relationship to social media and our relationship to thinking and ideas. You know, I... I don't believe that technology makes us more dumb. I don't buy that argument. And, you know, it's probably not the subject of this note or this podcast, but this is a, an incredibly old argument. It goes back to Plato. Rousseau got in on it. I just don't buy that TV or social media or books or writing or whatever you want to fill in the blank with. I just don't believe that any of it makes us more dumb. I don't buy it. And so, you know, I, in, you know, the, even the bullhorn argument in this article that Hayes brings in, you know, uh, the, uh, that basically someone with a bullho- bullhorn walks in the room and can instantly dominate the conversation. Uh, of course, that's true. Uh, and of course, you can leave the room and continue the conversation somewhere else. Um, we always have the option to engage with one another in a sincere way, always. It's always on the table for us. We choose based on our social, uh, you know, based on our own inclinations and the own sort of the tendencies of the social class we belong to, to either engage with one another constructively or to shit on each other. And right now, the shitting on each other is an ascendance. This is, this is what is passing for discourse uh, in America, but it is not because of social media. It's because that is the etiquette of the age, that those are what our collective manners um, make acceptable conduct or or uh, basically uh, earn us praise from those in our social group. So this was a very famous uh, the study made the rounds. I shouldn't say very famous, but the study made the rounds on social media not that long ago, that the most ironclad way to get likes and to go viral in your social media sphere is to crap on the opposition to 
to dunk on the opposition, to say something that so clearly owns the other side that you're celebrated and held up. And this is an aspect of this master-slave dynamic. It's not just that we want to be seen by the slave in in Kojeva's uh, uh, explanation of it. This goes back to, you know, like this also connects to Sartre's idea of the lover and beloved. Like we want we want the object of our desire to love us in return of their own volition. So the thing that we want, we have no control over. We want the slave to regard us as the master. And this is a big part of what happened with the election of Donald Trump, which Hayes, unfortunately, uses as his foil. Like, I really wish we would stop doing that. Like, we can dunk on Donald Trump all day. Like, we don't need to do that anymore. That is low-hanging fruit. There is nothing inspiring or inspirational about doing that. I don't – I'm not a defender of Trump. I – the very like i i literally couldn't really watch him on tv because of my my reflexive like gag reflex my intellectual gag reflex but i don't need to write about that we need to stop writing about that and talk about much more intractable much more difficult problems which is that we are in love right now in our sophisticated social universes in the new yorker and the new york times in all of these places we are in love with our fame vis-a-vis other people's villainy. So it's it, what is what is most admirable about us as a progressive liberal star is how effectively we can put down and dominate an other. This is that part of the master-slave dynamic. It's not just that we want to be seen by the slave. It's that we want to be seen by slaves as masters and by other masters as having a position over the slave, right? Now, uh, master-slave is, you know, a really freighted heavy term in American uh, history. So, you know, I'm only using it because Hayes used it. And so, you know, I'm, I'm trying not to drift too far from that. But our performance, what what is currently in fashion, what is currently in vogue, our moral performance is played out so that we appear to be virtuous, i.e. masterly, to the other virtuous, masterly people whose attention we are seeking. And it's absolutely poisonous, and it is not because of social media. Social media has just made it easier to do. So you know, I, I can wrap up here, but the, you know, the, the, the fame, the the star and fan dynamic of always, you know, an opportunity to always be famous on social media. I don't think it's particularly new. It is intensified by the number of people, the number of elites, and all of us who have enough time to spend hours on social media are elites. Whether however many zeros are after your. Uh, your salary at the end of the year or what tax bracket you inhabit. In the history of the world, we are elites. Um, and this, the, the fame, uh, the star and fan dynamic that Hayes has called out here is an old one. And it's one that we can deal better with. It's not an intractable problem. It's just a matter of starting to create better manners and better 
forms of conduct and etiquette around how we treat one another and how we treat our uh, our political and social antagonists. As always, thanks very much for listening. Uh, we really value your ears uh, and your time, uh, and uh, we'll speak to you next week. Good morning, good afternoon, or good evening. This is Seth Rodney. I am the current opinions editor and senior critic at Hyperallergic, uh, the online arts magazine, which if you've been listening to the podcast for a while, by now you're already familiar with. I am talking about Christopher Hayes' uh, piece in The New Yorker, which is titled, On the Internet, We're Always Famous. And I have to admit that tonight is not the best night to talk about this piece. It's, um, as well as actually Friday morning. It's one in the morning for me. I've had a long day writing, editing. I took the train back home to Newburgh. Um, and the sound you hear is me taking a sip of gin as I kind of ease into this. Um, took a train home to Newburgh and then had dinner with friends and then came home proper and um, had a few things to do before I did this. So it was late and reading this essay on the internet, we're always famous. I have a couple of immediate responses. One, which is I probably would do better with having a day or two to think about this. I think some of the ideas that Hayes, I don't know whether to call him Hayes or Christopher. I feel like I've called other people by their first names. Maybe I should continue that. Christopher. I don't know that I have enough time to sit with these ideas, to speak on them in any sort of insightful way. But I did highlight a few portions in the piece, and I'll just go through them step by step and give you my lukewarm take. One of the things he says is the Western intellectual tradition spent millennia maintaining a conceptual boundary between public and private, embedding it in laws, in law and politics, norms and etiquette, theorizing and reinscribing it. With the help of a few tech firms, we basically tore it down in about a decade. Um, not sure that that's true now that I've said that out loud. I think there's always ways in which people, if they took on a role that was more public, well, maybe, I don't know, maybe if you're a politician and maybe that crosses that conceptual boundary. Um, or a salesman or a carnival barker. I don't, I don't know. Um, but I think that this is an important idea, the idea that we used to demarcate the public from the private really scrupulously. And maybe we did so 
because we didn't have the tools that we have now. Um, I don't know. Again, that's something I feel like I need to think about more. A few tech firms. It's not a few tech firms, actually, that does the cause of this. It's, I think ultimately it's the profit motive. I mean, at some point in the industrial age, we figured out that there are these particular tools that we've developed and, and, and will develop that will allow us to reach markets and exploit desire in a way that we hadn't before. That's, and, 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 and make sumptuous profit from that. That's not about the tech firms. That's more, more about our desire to attain a kind of lifestyle and a kind of social status that we didn't have before by constructing mechanisms, products, platforms that will make us a lot of money. Um, that's a problem. I've said it before, and I think it's true, that the profit motive will be written on this species tombstone. I, I, I do. I really believe that. Um, I think Travis will probably have more to say about the Western intellectual tradition that Hayes refers to, or Christopher refers to. I, I don't know that I have a good grasp on that. Another thing he says is being known by strangers and even more dangerously seeking their approval is an existential trap. And right now the condition of contemporary life is to shepherd entire generations into the spiritual quicksand. Yeah, I agree with that. And I have to say, personally, I feel this tonight because I recently wrote a piece for Hyperlogic, which is, I think, on the resonance and something of Chekaya Booker. It's a, um, I think it was published on Monday or Tuesday of this week. I, I wrote about Chekaya Booker's show at the ICA Miami, which I saw a little more than a week ago and which I thought was brilliant. But in writing the piece, in writing the ostensible review, I call out several other artists who I think are doing a rather slack job of making work. I call them out by name. Uh, Rodney McMillan, Eric Mack, Richard Tuttle, uh, Deborah Anzinger, a few, and I, I think one, one, maybe one other. And I have been slightly worrying about this because no one or very few people on Twitter have taken notice or retweeted this. And it feels like this is a sort of typical response I have when I write something really critical about black people from black artists who happen to be on Twitter. They just ignore me. They just don't say anything. And that ends up making me feel... I'm not sure what it makes me feel like. Maybe under-recognized or, un or like no one's paying attention to me. And I don't write to have that happen, I don't think. But it feels validating to have people say, 
this piece was insightful or this piece really made sense to me or you said something that I've been thinking about and I haven't said out loud, which has happened in the past. Um, and it feels like this reaction on my part is about seeking other people's approval or seeking at least seeking other people's recognition and maybe like Christopher says later on in the piece maybe I'm I fall into the trap of looking for attention as opposed to recognition I don't know it's hard it's it's hard to be clear about this because I feel like I'm in the middle of that quicksand like I'm I only have, I don't know, 2,500 followers on Twitter, something like that, which is a lot more than lots of people do, but it's not anywhere near uh, the number of followers that people who I estimate as influential have. So I fall into, yes, the slow of this despond, which is... Comparing myself to other people and wondering whether I'll ever get to whatever arbitrary sign of their accomplishment or their status is. I don't know. I think, I think Christopher's, I think he's on to something. I think he's right. I think it is a kind of quicksand. And then he says later on in the piece, why do any of us post anything? Because we want other see, other human beings to, other humans to see us, to recognize us. Yeah, that's true. I know that I really suffered from not having my parents ever really see me as a child. Growing up, I think that I was always kind of trying to be an intellectual. I don't know if I was, but I definitely had the seeds in me and was always interested in language and in insightful articulation and in research and in profound understanding. And I don't think that anybody in my family ever recognized that in me or called it out if they did. But people at school, when I was in junior high and high school, did, and people later on and in grad school and well, not so much, not so much in, in grad school, actually. I think a lot of that came later when I started writing, uh, after London, after earning the PhD. But I know that I want recognition. That's for sure. It's really important to me. It needs to be seen. And I was just talking about this with my therapist the other day, that it's important that I, that my lover, the person I'm with, be able to see me. So it feels like that bubble extends out to the general world. And then Christopher writes, and so the star seeks recognition and gets instead attention. Yeah, so what he's saying essentially is that we've weaned ourselves on empty calories that we've, and we've learned to look for attention, uh, which is a poor substitute for recognition, but it's what we can get. 
So we take that. And if you look at the Instagram account, influencers in the wild, you'll see that. You'll see that happening. You'll see people just doing all kinds of performative nonsense. Okay, that's not fair. It's not nonsense. Performative calisthenics. In order to get attention, it feels like nonsense to me because I don't want to have any part of that. But it's not not, it's actually not nonsensical. There is an, there's a clear aim and there are clear goals and, uh, there are thought out methods to achieve those goals. Reminds me of something David Foster Wallace said about being an actor. He said something like, he wrote something like, like it, essentially it'd be kind of hell to be an actor because you're always, asking for people's approval. You're always putting yourself out there as skilled and as talented and as smart and intuitively insightful as you may be. You're always putting yourself out there in front of people to judge you. And you're always waiting on their validation to feel good about yourself. And that just cannot be good. That just cannot be healthy. And as he says, quote, but the psychological experience of fame, like a virus invading a cell, takes all of the mechanisms for human relations and puts them to work seeking more fame. And that's the ditch that we've dug ourselves. I agree with him. I am impressed by how thoughtful Christopher Hayes is. Did I also think that there's likely a way in which this is too Damning? I think we're not just seeking fame. I think we are, I mean, we're also seeking recognition, as he points out. I also think we're seeking love. I think we're also seeking affection. And maybe we think that those things will come by way of attention. Uh, I think we're also seeking to dominate. Some of us are seeking to dominate other people. And some of us are seeking, well, whatever dark desires exist in the human psyche. I agree with most of what Christopher Hayes says in this, in this article. And then I think ultimately that in addition to all the other things that have been happening with us in the past few years, you know, the coming ecological crisis, oh, no, the ecological crisis is already here. Um, the sort of tilt towards authoritarianism and towards uh, seeing expertise as suspect by default and imagining that freedom has everything to do with just disregarding other people's safety or concerns or imagining that the government is out to harm you. I think all these things just make a very, very toxic mix. And I'm not bullish about our future at all. So what am I saying? I'm saying that maybe there is something to the idea that we should stop using platforms like Twitter and Facebook regularly and develop the muscles that allow us to cultivate local community. 
and long and meaningful conversations with people who actually see who we are. Hi, this is Stephen G. Fullwood, your friendly neighborhood archivist and co-founder of the Nomadic Archivist Project. I introduced this week's note, and here's why. 1981. I was a kid in high school, and I was obsessed with a book called Subliminal Subjugation by Wilson Brian Key. On the cover of the paperback, there's a glass filled with ice cubes and presumably liquor, and a couple of lemon slices on his rim. In red, just under the title of the book, is this phrase, Are you being sexually aroused by this picture? I wasn't, but I was a teen. I was sexually aroused most of the time. But what did arouse me was the idea of the impact of advertising, creating a need where there wasn't one, to sell products with planned obsolescence. I was studying commercial art in school, and it was a vocational school, one of the last in Toledo. During my senior year, I decided not to become a commercial artist for two good reasons. One, I can't produce art on demand. And two, I didn't want to be a part of any industry that was trying to sell people anything. I am fascinated with advertisements and feel like they're ever getting closer and closer and closer to people, to me. Billboards, commercials on TV, on the radio, and in trailers for films, and posters, flyers, brochures, newspapers, magazines, journals, comics, pornography, on sidewalks, elevators, above urinals. I became hyper-aware when anyone was trying to sell me anything. Now, the internet. Chris Hayes' article gave me language for what I was seeing happening in a perverse way. Advertisers, advertisements were getting closer, and so were we. In a way, we were becoming advertisements. We were experiencing a weird kind of fame on the internet. We were connecting to each other and turning into products ourselves. A kind of product placement that was in progress. Access to everyone via the internet would envelop us all, even if you weren't on social media. The internet is now how p- the default space to get news, recipes, directions, explore social media, find people, etc., etc., etc. It is a space ever expanding exponentially since its development, like a series of little big bangs giving birth to con- countless streams of information. It also brings up our desires close and personal in a way we could have never anticipated or expected. Prior to the internet, dreams of fame often died hard deaths. Do you know the way to San Jose? Now, heading towards the third decade of the internet, fame is not only accessible, but it feels normal. Feels like you could easily trip and fall into it. It could be just a click away. The ubiquity of the internet and social media feels like an odd mixture of advertisements and fame and a low-level influencer quality in a way that doesn't matter if you're selling anything or not. You are, in fact, selling yourself, your lifestyle, your perspective, and your culture and maybe some image of yourself that really doesn't exist. And to me, it feels terrible. This coming from someone who only wanted to be a famous rock musician and had no other dream for years. I ended up in art, literature, and archives, podcasting, which helped me see my hunger for fame for what it was, and for what it is, rather. A desperate need to be seen and heard after what seemed like a lifetime of abuse, poverty, and invisibility. I'm still trying to unlearn what was taught to me about feeling marginal and disposable. And trust me, the panacea isn't fame. It just might be anonymity. Anonymity.